Our text for this morning, people of God, is Psalm 26. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this psalm is in many ways similar to Psalm 17. In both of these psalms, David strongly asserts his innocence. If you turn back for a moment to Psalm 17, you can see that. You have tested my heart, verse 3. You have visited me in the night. You have tried me and have found nothing. And here, of course, in this psalm, I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. And in both of these psalms, David also asks specifically for God to vindicate him. That's found especially in verse 2 of Psalm 17. Let my vindication come from your presence. Let your eyes look on the things that are upright. And here, of course, vindicate me, O Lord. And then again, examine me, prove me, and try me. But there are also significant differences between these psalms. If you look a little more closely at Psalm 17, you will see that in Psalm 17, David is dealing with a specific attack of his enemies against him. And he is in that attack of his enemies, presenting his cause to the Lord and asking the Lord to defend and uphold him in that cause, to vindicate his cause and to find fault with his enemies. You see that especially in the last part of the psalm. But when you look at this psalm, you do not find any specific mention of enemies. You do find specific mention of the wicked. But even when he talks about the wicked in this psalm, David does not mention any specific attack of his enemies on him. Rather, he looks at the wicked in verses 4 and 5, especially as those with whom he should have no company. I have not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go in with hypocrites. And I think this already begins to point us to a very important aspect of this psalm, and that is that David is not asking for vindication of a specific Cause, He's not asking for the Lord to judge between him and his enemies in a specific set of circumstances, but he is asking the Lord to vindicate him in the whole of his life. He is asking for the Lord to judge his life and to pass a sentence of righteousness upon that life. Now that becomes particularly clear when you consider one of the features of this psalm, and that is that throughout this psalm you have some assertions that David makes regarding his innocence that are in the past tense, and some that are in future tense. And he alternates back and forth between these two. He says, for example, in verse 1, I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. I will not slip. 
Again, in verses 4 and 5, this is where it's most striking, in fact. I have not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go in with hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. You see it again in the contrast between verses 6 and 8. I will wash my hands in innocence, so I will go about your altar, O Lord. But then in verse 8, Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house. You find it even in the last verse of the psalm, though the translation does not convey it. The first line of that psalm, also of that verse, could be translated, my foot has stood in an even place, using the same tense that is used in the rest of the statements of this psalm. And in the last line, in the congregations, I will bless the Lord. So David is looking both backward upon the whole of his life up to that point and also making commitments about the future. I will not slip. I will not go in with hypocrites. I will not sit with the wicked. I will wash my hands in innocence and so on. David is presenting then his whole life to the Lord for examination and asking the Lord to vindicate him in the whole of his life. Another way that this comes out is through the number seven, which is not immediately obvious here, but if you start to count the verbs in this psalm, you will find that there are three groups of seven verbs. You first have seven pleas. Vindicate me, O Lord, is the first one. Then in verse 2, numbers 2, 3, and 4, examine me, prove me, and try me. Verse 9, do not gather my soul with sinners. That's number 5. Then finally in verse 11, redeem me and be merciful. That's numbers 6 and 7. Now if you count up the past tenses in the psalm, including the one we pointed to in in verse 12, you'll see that there are also seven verbs in the past tense in the psalm. And there are seven verbs in the future tense. I cannot believe, people of God, that that's an accident. David is presenting the whole of his life before the Lord, and he is asking the Lord for vindication of the whole of his life. I think this psalm divides itself into three parts. The first part is verse 1, where we have a kind of summary of the psalm. The plea for vindication and the reasons or the basis on which that vindication should happen. I have walked in my integrity and so on. Then in verses 2 to 8, David repeats this prayer. Examine me, prove me, and try me. And adds again reasons for it. And finally in verse 9, He repeats the prayer a third time, do not gather my soul with sinners, and again adds the reasons for it. So let's consider the psalm under the theme, praying for vindication, or better, as we'll see in a moment, praying for judgment, praying for judgment. First, vindicate me, verse 1. Secondly, examine me, prove me, and try me, verses 2 to 8. And finally, do not gather my soul with sinners, 
verses 9 to 12. The word vindicate that we have here in the New King James is in the Hebrew simply judge. And I think it's important to recognize that because though in the end David is asking for vindication, asking for God to pass upon him a sentence of righteousness, David is asking for that sentence of righteousness in the context of God's judgment. David recognizes that in his relationship with the Lord, the Lord is continually his judge. Every day the Lord judges him. The Lord is continually setting before him in his word, his character and his law. The Lord is continually reminding him through his word of the curses of those who do not obey that law and the blessings of those who walk in that law. God is continually, therefore, setting that word before him as the standard by which he must live and judging him according to that standard. In fact, also working in his conscience so that that word is sealed upon him and either the approval or disapproval of God is made known to him in his heart. God's judgment is a constant factor in our lives. It doesn't happen just occasionally. It happens all the time. God is always judging us. Now that doesn't mean that David does not have in mind here also a specific instance of judgment, He is also looking to that great day when God shall publicly confirm his vindication and make his righteousness at that point completely unassailable by his enemies. He is looking for the final vindication also. And his prayer for the judgment of God on both sides of this question is a very urgent prayer. He makes that prayer at least three times here in the psalm. Three times asking for God to judge him. He not only expects judgment, therefore, but he looks forward to it. And I'd like to remind you, people of God, very briefly of what our catechism says about that judgment in Question and answer 52. What comfort is it to you that Christ shall come to judge the living and the dead, that in all my sorrows and persecutions I, with uplifted head, look for the very one who offered himself for me to the judgment of God and removed all curse from me to come as judge from heaven, who shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but shall take me with all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. David is praying also for that final judgment. And of course he can pray for that final judgment. He can pray for any judgment of God, in fact, only because he believes that the Lord will indeed vindicate him. He would never seek such judgment, of course, if he believed that he would be found guilty. He would flee that judgment as the ungodly indeed do. But he has confidence that when he comes into the judgment of God, God will indeed vindicate him. 
And he has that confidence as we find in verse 1 when he reviews his life. I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. Now integrity, people of God, is completeness or wholeness. The example that, was, that I found in the dictionary, which I looked up with regard to this word, was preserving the integrity of an empire. That is, preserving it in its completeness. David is saying here, I have walked as a complete man of God. I have walked in my integrity. That is, he not only has integrity internally, it's not only a part of his character, but he has also walked in that integrity. He has walked according to the character that he has. Secondly, he says, I have also trusted in the Lord. Now, faith, people of God, is the fundamental characteristic of the godly man. The fundamental characteristic of the godly man. It is the beginning of all things that belong to Christian life. It is the root out of which all virtue, all Christian living, all godliness, all integrity flows. Nothing comes to us that is good except by way of faith. And that faith is what? That faith is dependence on God. So David is not saying, as he comes to present himself to the judgment of God, I have walked in my integrity. Look! How wonderful my integrity is. Look how great and how faithful a man I have been. But he says, I have trusted in the Lord. My integrity and all that I have of good comes to me from him. It is the root of all virtue. It is the root of all godly living in me. And of course, in that faith, then also he says, I will not slip. He looks to the future and he says, I will maintain my integrity and my faith. That about verse 1. Then verses 2 to 8. Examine me, prove me, try my mind and my heart. The three words that David uses there are all very similar in meaning. Except that the very last one is the word that's used in the refining of silver or gold or something like that. So you could almost translate it here, refine me. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me and refine my mind and my heart. We should also note that the word mind is in the Hebrew, literally kidneys. That makes us laugh, but it's a very common expression in the Hebrew. Refers, the Hebrew refers to kidneys. The King James usually translates it reins, which is the same thing as kidneys, just an old word. But the idea here is kidneys and the idea that David is trying to convey is that he wants God to look 
not only at what can be seen externally, but that he wants God to look into his inmost being, that he wants him to plumb the depths of his being, to see what lies at the very heart and center of his being, that is, to bring everything that is in him into the light, so that there is nothing hidden within him. He's not trying here in coming into the presence of God to ask for judgment, to conceal behind a wall of secrecy his sins in the past, sins against Uriah, sins in the numbering of the people, and many, many other sins that he himself would have been eager to recount if called upon to do so. He's not trying to conceal those sins. He's asking God to examine him down to the very depths of his being, down to the center of his being, to bring all into the light. And what will God find? That's what he describes in verses 3 to 8. We may divide that into three parts. First, he will find that God's loving kindness has been before his eyes and he has walked in your truths. He has, throughout all of his life, depended on the loving kindness and the faithfulness of God. Again, we see that this is not self-reliance that brings him into the judgment of God to ask judgment. It is his conviction of the loving kindness and faithfulness of God that brings him in to the judgment. He counts on God's loving kindness. He has looked to that loving kindness in all things. He counts on God's faithfulness. Others are unfaithful. He himself is unfaithful. No man can be fully counted on in all circumstances. But there is one who can be, and that is God. And David says about that faithfulness of God, I have walked in it. I have walked in your faithfulness. I have looked to your loving kindness. That in the first place. In the second place, David talks about how he has shunned the company of evil men. Verses 4 and 5. And there are a couple words that we have to pay attention to here. I have not sat, he says, with idolatrous mortals nor will I go in with hypocrites. I want to take a few minutes to talk about those two words that describe the wicked here, idolatrous mortals and hypocrites. Actually, that word idolatrous mortals, that term could be translated false or vain men. False or vain men. It sometimes refers to idolatry, but doesn't necessarily refer to idolatry here. So David is talking about those men who are full of empty talk who flatter with their lips, who swear oaths deceitfully, who bring false reports, who bear false witness, whose mouths do not speak what is in their hearts, whose lives are not consistent with what they say about themselves, who are full of falsehood, who are habitual transgressors of the ninth commandment especially. David is saying, I have not sat with them. I have not had fellowship with them. He recognizes that the friendship of the world is enmity against God. And he has not walked in the path of such men as those. 
The second word he uses to describe the wicked is translated here, hypocrites. And the basic meaning of the Hebrew word is hiding. So you can see why it's translated hypocrites. Hypocrites are those who conceal their true character under a show of piety. But I'd like to suggest, people of God, that there's another possibility with regard to that word. And that possibility arises out of a study of that word in the various books of the Old Testament. First of all, in Deuteronomy, verses 20, chapter 22, verses 1 and 4. David said, or Moses says there in Deuteronomy 22, You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and hide yourself from them. You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. And again in verse 4, You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fall down along the road and hide yourself from them. You shall surely help him lift them up again. Then also in Proverbs 28, verse 27. Proverbs 28, verse 27. Where we read this, He who gives to the poor will not lack, but he who hides his eyes will have many curses. And finally, in Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 26. Ezekiel 22, verse 26, where God is accusing the priests, and he says, Her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished between the holy and unholy, nor have they, have they made known the difference between the unclean and the clean, and they have hidden their eyes from my Sabbath, so that I am profaned among them. In all three instances, the same word as we find here in Psalm 26. So what I'd like to suggest, people of God, is that the kind of people David is talking about here in 26 are not especially hypocrites, but those people who have opportunity to do good and hide themselves from it. Those people who are presented in their daily walk with an opportunity to help the poor or to help the neighbor or to keep the Sabbath and who decide that the inconvenience and trouble of obedience to the law is too much for them, they withdraw themselves and do not do what the law requires. They hide themselves from good. David says, I will not sit with them. I will not sit with them. He has hated the assembly of evildoers. He will not sit with the wicked. Notice again the alternation between past and future. I have not sat, I will not go. I have hated, I will not sit. He shuns utterly and will shun the fellowship of the ungodly. That's the idea. That's the first thing then that he appeals to when he asks for God's judgment. Secondly, or that's the second thing rather, forgot about verse 3. Thirdly, in verses 6 to 8, he looks at his love for the house of God. If you want to judge a man's character, one of the ways to do that is to look at what he loves and what he hates. 
can't judge a man accurately by his words about himself. His words will almost always be prejudiced in his own favor. But you can judge a man by what he loves and what he hates. And David in this psalm talks about both what he hates, the company of wicked men, and what he loves, the habitation of the Lord's house. He begins in his discussion of this love for the Lord's house by saying, I will wash my hands in innocence. That's a reference, people of God, to a a rite demanded of the priests in their going about the altar of God. Before they could handle the sacrifices at the altar of God, they had to wash their hands at the labor. There are some other instances of washing hands, a ritual of washing hands. We think, for example, of the prominent uh, example of Pontius Pilate, who washed his hands of the blood of Jesus, even though he was fully guilty of that blood. There's another example as well of the elders of a city being asked to wash their hands to declare their innocence of the death of a man who was found murdered in the vicinity of their village. That's another example of this ritual. But I think that here, David is talking about washing the hands in preparation for making sacrifices because he immediately follows it up with, so I will go about your altar, O Lord. So he's referring especially to that ritual that the priests were required to perform. And he is saying, I will keep the commandments of God outwardly. I will perform the ceremonies of the law as they are required. But I will do it in innocency. That is, I will keep the commandments not only externally, but I will keep them internally as well. I will keep them sincerely and from my heart. I will wash my hands in innocence. And in thus washing his hands in innocence, he will come to the altar of God and go about it. So I will go about your altar, O Lord. He claims for himself then the right of a priest to approach the altar of the Lord. Now the priests were, of course, in the Old Testament, specially holy, specially consecrated to the Lord, consecrated to him, first of all, by God's choice of the tribe of Levi and of the family of Aaron to be priests. Consecrated also by the various ceremonies by which they took up that office. Consecrated by the various washings and sacrifices which they were required to perform before they could serve in the temple. Consecrated even by their dress. The holy garments which they had to wear. In all these things their special holiness was manifest. They could draw more near to God than any of God's people could do. They went to God on behalf of the people. The people had to stay at a distance and the priests had to be the mediators between them and their God. They were specially holy. Well, David says, I will wash my hands in innocency and I will go about your altar. He speaks in a kind of priestly way of how he will be consecrated to the Lord in all of his life. And how in that consecration to the Lord he will offer the appropriate sacrifices as well uh, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works. 
The wonderful thing about that statement of David, people of God, is that it has been fulfilled in us through the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has constituted us a holy priesthood to go about his altar, to be consecrated to him, and to proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all his wondrous works as our fitting sacrifices. He will do that. That is the desire of his heart, people of God, because he loves the habitation and has loved the habitation of God's house. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. The temple was, of course, the dwelling place of God, and the glory of God was in the most holy place through the Shekinah, the cloud of glory, that the people at various times in their history saw descending there. There were many things in David's life that he loved and valued. But there was one thing that he loved and valued above all other things. One thing that he loved and valued more than family and friends, more than the glory of his kingship, more than the victories that he fought on behalf of God's people and against the enemies of God. And that one thing was to be in the house of God, where God's glory dwells. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house, the place in which your glory dwells. So David, as he presents himself to the Lord, examine me, prove me, and try my mind and my heart has fixed his eyes on the love and faithfulness of God, has shunned and will shun the company of evildoers, is consecrated to the Lord in all of life, has made it his life's work to praise and honor him. He has seen and he has lived the antithesis. He has refused evil and he has sought righteousness. And so he prays, examine me, prove me, and try me. Finally, David says in verses 9 to 12, do not gather my soul with sinners. Now I think what we ought to do in looking at those last few verses of the psalm is look at the other petition that goes in this falls in this part of the psalm as well. He says in the beginning of this section, do not gather my soul with sinners or my life with bloodthirsty men. And then at the end of verse 11, he says, redeem me and be merciful to me. Now there are a couple of things that we need to note about that. First of all, there's not here in verse 9 a very sharp break with what goes before when he says, do not gather my soul with sinners, he certainly is referring back to verses 4 and 5, where he says, I have not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor have I, nor will I go with hypocrites. He's now saying, because he has not done that, do not gather my soul with them. That is, when I come into your judgment, do not put me on the left hand, where the goats are standing, 
And where those who must also come into judgment hear the word of the judge, depart from me, you evildoers, you workers of iniquity. I do not know you. He is asking then for judgment here, but he is also asking for a specific verdict in that judgment. Here he goes beyond verses 1 and 2, where he just simply asks for judgment. He asks for a specific verdict. Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men. I do not want in your judgment to be classed with those who are ungodly. I do not want to be found among those who must come into judgment, but who cannot stand there. Do not let me come into the judgment in that way. And do not let me come into the judgment in that way because of my righteousness. I am disgusted with, I hate their deeds. There's a certain disgust of David that's certainly evident in these two verses. Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, that is, men whose desire is to kill, whether literally or only in words, in whose hand is a sinister scheme and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, he says, I will walk in my integrity. Now notice again, people of God, the change in tense. In verse 1 he says, I have walked in my integrity. Here he says, I will walk in my integrity. Past and future, both. Talking about what has gone before, making commitments for what will come after. I will walk in my integrity. But let's also note that he says at the end, redeem me and be merciful to me. Again, people of God, this is not David coming into the presence of God to assert his own righteousness. And to say to God, I have walked worthily all of my life. You have no choice but to vindicate me. You must vindicate me in your justice because I have been perfect. I have righteousness in myself. And therefore I expect you to recognize my righteousness. A man who comes before a judge in innocence does not talk to the judge about the need for redemption and mercy. He talks to the judge about the need for justice. And he does not bless the judge for when the judge does his job and declares him innocent. He just simply says the judge has done his duty. But when David comes in the presence of God, people of God, we should see that he is coming there to be judged by faith. He comes by faith. He doesn't come depending on his own righteousness. He comes depending on that redemption and mercy which the judge has shown to him in the past. 
He's not trying to conceal sins. He's not denying the existence of sin. He knows them. But he is clothed with the righteousness of God. And being clothed with the righteousness of God, he knows that in coming into the judgment of God, God will find him to be a man of integrity. Not because it exists in him, but because it exists in that one who himself also prayed. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. Our Lord Jesus Christ. So David can say then at the end of this psalm, my foot has stood in an even place. That corresponds with what he says in verse 1, I shall not slip. Future tense here in the past. My foot has stood in an even place. That is, I have found firm ground for my feet. Ground which will hold me. Ground which will not crumble away from beneath me and cause me to fall or to slip. I have stood in an even place. I've stood in an even place which the Lord himself has prepared for me. And in the congregations, I will bless the Lord. That is, I will continue to fulfill the duties of a godly man. I will bless the Lord. But notice, too, that we have here a fitting close for the psalm. It's not just another assertion of integrity that we find here in verse 12, but it is also a promise for the future. Because of what the Lord has done for him, I will bless him in the congregations, the gatherings of God's people. Now I think, people of God, that if we take this and try to apply it to ourselves, the first thing we probably, conclusion we'll probably come to is that we don't very often pray this, if ever. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. Why is that? Why is it so difficult for us to pray as David prayed here? Well, in the first place, of course, there is the awareness of our sins. We are sinful creatures. We cannot come into the presence of God and ask for judgment with all our sins upon us. He will not vindicate us if we come with our sins upon us. His judgment will be a fearful and terrible thing then. But there's another reason too, I think, people of God, and that gets more to the heart of the matter, more to the heart of the problem we have with praying this psalm. I think that is that we are not enough aware of the antithesis, that we are not enough aware of the difference between ourselves and the wicked, of that difference which God has established by putting enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And perhaps that lack of awareness is due to the fact that we do not strive as earnestly as we ought to live 
the antithesis. We do not strive as earnestly as we ought to be those who shun the company of evildoers, to be those who wash their hands in innocency and go about God's altar, to be those who have loved the habitation of the Lord's house. And so that that very marked difference that exists or should exist between the righteous and the wicked is not present to us. It's not present to us. And so we can't come to God and ask for vindication. We can't come to Him because we haven't fully committed ourselves to a righteous life. Because we do not dare in our weakness and in our unfaithfulness to assert, I have walked in my integrity. It's not an assertion of perfection. I don't think David anywhere in in this psalm makes an assertion of perfection. But what he does say about himself, people of God, is that he has conducted himself and will conduct himself as a man of God in the world. That he has not and will not keep company with the wicked. That he will indeed wash his hands in innocency and go about God's altar. That he has indeed loved the house of God and has been committed to that house above all other things. If we could have that kind of awareness, that kind of consciousness, then we could pray, Vindicate me, O Lord. Not because of our righteousness. We have no righteousness in ourselves. But because of that righteousness with which our God himself clothes us in Jesus Christ. There have been commentators, people of God, who have dismissed this psalm as preposterous boasting on the part of David. The psalm is not boasting. The whole tenor of the psalm is against it. Examine me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is before my eyes. I will walk in your truth. I will proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving. I will tell of all your wondrous works. Redeem me and be merciful. In the congregations, I will bless the Lord. The psalm is full of his faith. It's faith here that constitutes his righteousness before God. And again, it's not faith as a substitute for righteousness, as the Arminians say, but it is faith that rejects the possibility of doing anything for ourselves and that commits itself wholly to the Lord for righteousness. And having committed itself wholly to the Lord for righteousness, dares to say, judge me! For I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. I will not, by the grace of God, slip. Having heard the word of God, let us say, Amen.